You guys stand up with me as we pray together and we get into Scripture and continue through our Vision and Values uh, series. Last installment this morning. Father, now we pray that as we have um, gathered to worship and to pray and to do community and eventually we will eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we ask now that as we consider the truth of Scripture that your word would be alive to us, that it would come alive in us. And that as James told us, we would not just be hearers, but doers of the truth of your word. And we pray, Spirit of the living God, come freshly upon us. Minister to us as we sing it today. The Lord is in this place. We want to really lean into that and believe that your presence is here and that we can hear from you this morning. So I pray that your word would be clear and that we would be activated to do what your word says to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we said together, amen, amen. You can have a seat. So for the fall, we like to take a little break each year and revisit and reacquaint ourselves with our vision and values. And uh, if you haven't memorized our mission statement, that might be something, if you're uh, a serious part of Emmaus, uh, to remember Really, when you think about what Emmaus is about, Emmaus exists as a what? Authentic, I'm giving you hints, Emmaus exists as an authentic community, Emmaus exists as a building family around the scriptures. So we've talked about those two things already, and I haven't done a good job because you guys are looking at me like deer in headlights. Emmaus exists as an that builds family around the scriptures, empowering every believer in their God-authored mission. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this mission statement. Week one was church as authentic community. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. If you were not here, very important foundation stone for who we are and we believe God has called us to be as a people. Last week, we talked about uh, building family, that the church's family And our true north is the scriptures, and so we build family around the scriptures. This morning, we are going to talk specifically about this statement, empowering every believer in their God-authored mission. So if you follow Jesus, and your heart has been made new by Jesus, put your hand up right now. All right, so you are the people that this church exists to empower to go on a mission that God has for you. So if you put your hand up, then you are the ministers here. You are the men and women that we believe God have called us to empower for a mission that you're on. Amen? So what we're going to do this morning, uh, open to Acts chapter 1, and um, we're going to go through a brief rundown of some church history. How many excited about church history? Welcome to history class. Um, And then we're going to talk about how we got where the church is today and what we need to do to fix that, um, at least as it concerns us. So uh, are you ready for that? This is going to be a little ADD. We're going to be running through a bunch of texts, so uh, get your Bible flipping fingers ready. But we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, where the church started. Acts chapter 1 and 2 is ground zero for the church that Jesus built. So when you want to look at the best version of what the church is, go back to Acts chapter 1 and 2. The entire book of Acts, really, but especially chapters 1 and 2, set a foundation for what the church is to be. Before Jesus left the earth, you know, he ascended back up into heaven. After he was resurrected, he got together with his most intimate followers, 
which he had preached to thousands, but by the time he left the earth, he was leaving the future of his church in the hands of 120. And this is what he said to them, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, on one occasion... While he was eating with them. Now this is Jesus after he's been resurrected. He's already been crucified. He's already beat death. On one occasion, while he was eating with them. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just to be eating dinner with Jesus. Oh, and by the way, after Jesus rose again, we were having dinner one night. And resurrected Jesus says this. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now this is very, very crucial to the lifeblood of a Spirit-filled, Jesus-following church. Jesus commanded His church before He left, do not leave this city of Jerusalem and go bring my message out here until the Spirit of God has come upon you because you won't do it with the power that you need to... How many of you know that you can't do the things that God commands you to do without the power that God gives? And so before the church was to go, they were to come. They were to come and they were to wait. For he said, John, the baptizer who baptized in physical water, he baptized in water for repentance, but in not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he said, when you're baptized, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Literally, that word witnesses in the Greek is the word martus or martyr. You will be those who would be willing to lay down everything for the cause of Christ. You'll go into the world bearing my name and you shall bring, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city you live, and then Judea, just the neighborhood outside the wider region. And then Samaria, a place where no Jews like to go. You're going to cross those borders and and you're going to put down racism outside of Jerusalem, Judea, then into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the church obeyed the command of Jesus to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then notice what happens. Verse 12, after Jesus ascends, the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They had just watched Jesus go up. And they go back to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas. Not the one that just hung himself, but the son of James. They're missing one guy because he didn't turn out too well. They all joined together constantly in prayer. So for the time Jesus ascends back up into heaven, the church gathers doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, just waiting for the Spirit to come along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So the church was small when it started. It's 120 people. And they waited for what Jesus said was called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you can't do what I've asked you to do until you receive the power that I'm going to give you. The only thing you can do is wait. I promised it. You're going to have to wait for it. You know, that's how promises often work. There's a gap between the time the promise is given and the promise is received. And and it's usually in that gap that most of us fumble the ball. We, We hear God is going to do this. He's promised this. But then there's this waiting process. And it's in that waiting process that most of the mistakes are made in life. But just as Jesus promised, so it came. And the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Look at what happens. Go to chapter 2 of Acts 
They had waited there in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover and Pentecost. But when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The, the 120, they, they were in that room that they started in. However many days they were there, probably about 10. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. So it's this loud sound of a blowing wind like a freight train coming. The sound comes from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled, notice that verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about, commanded that they wait for. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Do you know they had no idea what was going to happen when the Holy Spirit came upon them? They just knew Jesus said, if you stay here, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to empower you to be my witnesses. And when the Spirit came, it was a demonstration of full power, and they began to speak in other languages. Now, as that happens, you know what's going on. There are Medes and Parthians and dwellers in Mesopotamia. Jews from all over the known world have gathered in Jerusalem. The, the city is packed full of people, and they're hearing these Galileans, these 120 Galileans, out the windows of the house speaking in various languages. But those in the streets were hearing them speak in the tongues from the towns and cities and places they had come from, and they said, how is it that these Galileans, these sim simple backwater Galileans, are speaking our mother language? And then they suggested, maybe they're drunk. I don't know why getting drunk would make you speak a foreign language very clearly, but for some, they thought, they've got to be drunk, and so they're speaking in other languages. And Peter, hearing this, word on the street is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is being equated to drunkenness. And Peter stands up and says something very interesting. He said, these men and women are not drunk as you suppose. And it could be translated, they're not drunk in the way that you think drunkenness. Typically, the drunkenness with wine. But they are intoxicated, are filled with a substance or a person or a power called the Holy Spirit. And Peter then preaches the gospel to this very large crowd gathered there around the upper room, hearing the, the, the believers speak in other languages, their languages. And notice what Peter says at the end of his gospel presentation, talking to them about the way of Jesus. Therefore, verse 36, Acts chapter 2, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were now, this is good preaching. You know you're preaching well when the response is, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Two ways you know that your sermon has been effective is when the gospel is preached, people's hearts are cut, and they ask this question, what should we do? In, by hearing this, not what should we think, but what should we do? Peter preached the gospel, and the people responded, in this way. And so Peter then tells them what they should do. Peter replied, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. That is, God wants to win you and your family and, and all kinds of people. All y'all. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. 
Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Boom. That's a great start of a church. That's a great launch. The Spirit of God comes. The believers are all empowered. All 120 of them were empowered. And I don't know what your view is on tongues. I don't really care. It's what the Bible says. All, all 120 of them were speaking in other languages. And it moved towards evangelism. You don't typically think of the gift of tongues, which a lot of Christians get weirded out about. I've had so many Christians tell me, I never want to speak in tongues. And I'm like, are you serious? So God has something that's a gift and you don't want it. That just doesn't sound smart to me. God's like, I want to give you something. You're like, nah, rather not have what you have to give. That's a whole different discussion. But this church receives what God has to offer. They speak in other languages and it leads to evangelism. Because of the curiosity that was sparked in the listening audience. And Peter then stands up. The man who previously was denying Christ in front of little girls is now standing up boldly at risk of his own life. He could have been crucified for this. And he declares the work of Jesus and then tells the Jews, it was you who crucified him. And they were cut to the heart. You missed your Messiah. They say, what do we have to do, Peter? Repent, turn away from the way you're going. Save yourself from this corrupt generation and be water baptized in the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people are baptized in water that day and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, this is how the church goes forward. Verse 42, this is clutch. This is key for Emmaus. This is key for all the church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, Breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were to be saved. How many could agree that this is a great start of a great movement? Now, this is the church right here. This is exciting. This is empowered. This is the church raw and real in the world making an impact. And as you know, later on, the gospel is going to go outside of Jerusalem and it's going to begin to go into the Gentile regions. Because by the end of Acts chapter 2, it's still a Jewish movement. Christianity hasn't gone to non-Jews. But then in Acts chapter 10, you remember this story. Peter, it's about lunchtime. He's sitting on the rooftop and God gives him a vision. He falls into a trance. He's hungry, it says, and he falls into a trance and has a vision about meat. That's what happens when you get hungry. Vision comes down from heaven. It's got unclean animals, non-kosher foods. And then God says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, I'm a good Jew, Lord. Not so, Lord. That's one thing you should never say. Not so in Lord. That should not go in the same sentence. You can say, not so, dude, or not so, bruh, but not, not so, Lord. You don't say, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. I don't eat unkosher foods. And God says, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Three times this vision happens. And then there's a man knocking at the door at Simon the Tanner's house, calling for one Simon Peter and saying, I was sent here to ask for Simon Peter to come with me. Simon Peter had been prepared to invite the unclean Jew into Christianity by this threefold vision. It came down three times. Don't count the Gentiles out. 
And so Peter goes with this stranger who knocks on the door, and he goes to the house of a, a, a Cornelius, who's a, a centurion for the Roman army. That means he ruled over 100 soldiers. He was an Italian man, but he had begun to believe on the Lord. And something miraculous happened. The church went from a, a Jewish movement and now it, it went outside into spread into Gentile realms. So Acts chapter 10, if you want to turn there, or you can jot it down in notes, and I believe it'll be up on the screen behind us. But this is what happens when Peter goes into Cornelius' home. A rather phenomenal thing begins to happen. Acts chapter 10, and we'll pick up in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, so Cornelius has gathered his friends and family. They're all gathered in the house, waiting for Peter to come deliver the good news. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So, I mean, that's every preacher's dream. While you're speaking, the Holy Spirit interrupts and falls on everybody. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has a right to interrupt the message, amen? When Peter's speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who came with Peter were astonished at what? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So the movement is starting to grow and move outside of just Jewish people now to the Gentiles. And the first spark of revival outside of, of Judaism hits at Cornelius' house, but it continues to spread because in Acts chapter 9, a infamous persecutor of the church named Saul of Tarsus is converted, filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized, and he gets on fire with the message of Jesus. He's a schooled, learned man. His name is Paul the Apostle as we know him. And he takes four missionary journeys to reach the entire known Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christianity makes a huge movement forward through the Apostle Paul who took the gospel to lands and regions where God's name had not been known, where Jesus was not yet known. And a revival begins to break out and the church begins to spread like wildfire. So much so that in Acts chapter 16, I believe it is, it was reported, they said it this way, those who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. When was the last time you heard about the church as a movement that was turning the world on its head? But that's how it started. And a hundred years in to the beginning of this church with 120 in Acts chapter 1, they were like, God, what are you going to do with us? How is this movement ever going to grow? How will Jesus' name be known? In the first hundred years, there was... 500,000 converted to Christianity in one year's time. That's quite a church plant. That's quite a movement. And that's quite a spirit movement. By the year 200, it had quadrupled from 500,000 to 2 million. By the year 300, the church was at 5 million followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Though she's been persecuted, though many waves of persecution and martyrdom had hit the church, as Tertullian said, the church historian, the, the, blood of the, saint, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you killed them, the more the movement grew. Because Jesus said, my spirit's going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses 
to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as Jesus promised, so it happened. They got, they received the power of the Holy Spirit and they took the gospel to unreached lands. So that by the year 300, the movement has gone from 120 to 5 million. Beautiful days. Beautiful history that we, we, we continue to look backward and praise God for this huge family that has spanned 2,000 years that we're a part of. We're a part of this great, wonderful, mysterious, raw, beautiful thing called the Church of Jesus. And I'm glad to be a part of her. But as things went forward, they got kind of weird. If you've read church history, we used to say at my church, the one thing you can learn from church history is that you cannot learn from church history. Because by the year 300 AD, around there, there came the uh, movement of Constantine, who was converted, and he basically made the church a political organization. And when the church got in bed with politics, she lost her witness in the world. So by the time of the 16th century, right before the Protestant Reformation, the church had changed drastically. Think about everything we just read. 120 people in a living room. 300 years later, the church has become and starting to become a political entity. So that by the 16th century, because of Constantine's moving the church into politics and, and the church getting in, into bed with, with politics and the government and the Roman Empire, by the 16th century, she's so polluted that, that now what has happened to the church, it's become a political money-making organization. And she's lost her witness in the world. And she has created a huge chasm between the clergy and the laity. And if you're not familiar with those terms, just think priests and people. There was this huge, huge gap between the priests way up here and the people way down here. And the people started to believe that they couldn't do ministry, that they had to go to the priests and go to the church for the ministry, that they weren't the church, that that big cathedral was the church, and only that select class called priests were actually the church. It got so ridiculous that the Bible was only in the language of the learned. It was written in Latin and chained to pulpits. And the clergy thought of that day it was dangerous for the common man to have a Bible because he would misinterpret it and damn his soul. So the church became very dependent on a very few, the, the, the religious elite, the priests. And then Martin Luther shows up on the scene and he takes his 95 thesis, his 95 indictments against the church and he nails them to the door of the church there in Germany at Wittenberg in the 16th century. And he begins a movement Part of the reform of the church that Martin Luther came to bring, it's been, it's been way corrupted, I think, in so many ways, the Protestant movement, but I'm still glad and proud to be a Protestant, even though there's been some shady stuff there as well. I think Martin Luther would turn over in his grave. Um, but, but part of the movement that Martin Luther led was a movement he called universal priesthood. Or maybe you've you heard it called the priesthood of all believers. Because what Martin Luther believed is that the ministry that the church is supposed to have should be in the hands of every single man, woman, and child. It was the goal of the Reformation and those who translated the Scriptures in the language of the common man that the common man would know the Bible as well as the priests and even better. And so it was the movement of, of the common people believing that every single person here that put your hand up and said, Jesus has changed my heart and my life, that you are a priest and priestess unto God.
That there isn't just a few elect and select that can do all the ministry and then you just got to come to them and be spectators. What a tragedy for the church to become a group of people that passively sit by while just a handful of paid professionals do all the work. Our job as the paid staff or pastors or leaders is to equip you, Ephesians 4.10, for the work of the ministry. We're, we're, we're standing in the equipment locker room giving you cleats and uh, football pads and helmets to say, go out on your God-authored mission. You are a priest of the Lord. You are kings and priests. Go do your ministry. And so Martin Luther, based on 1 Peter 2.9, declared we were all priests. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who calls you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Now go back there. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Include yourself in that. You are God's priest, priestess. The priests had two jobs in Israel. Twofold ministry of a priest. This is your twofold ministry. So if you're wondering what my ministry is, what your ministry is, it's this. You're a priest. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, in our context, it means this. The priest was to go before God on people's behalf. That is, pray for people. You have people in your life that aren't doing well. Before you go to them, go to God on their behalf. There are people that you know that I'm, I'm assuming there are very few people praying for them. And God said, that's because I put you as a priest in their life so that you would pray for them. Start creating a list of people that you're praying for. That was a priest's job. They would go before God because they were the accepted ones to go before God on, on behalf of all of those people. That's your job now. Go before God on people's behalf and then go before people on God's behalf. You go as a representative of Jesus. He is our high priest and we are priests underneath our high priest, Jesus. Amen? Our job is go before God on behalf of people and go before people on behalf of God. Go to God and go to people. Go to God and go to people in that order. Pray for people. Intercede for the lost. Pray for your neighbor. And then pray, God, give me an opportunity to go before them on your behalf. And do it in that order, I would suggest. You need the power and wisdom and the opportunity to go as Jesus told us to. Amen. Come on, you guys. Come on, church. This is our mission. This is important. So our point and purpose at Emmaus of the things that we feel God has called us to do, it's really simple. We believe in authentic community. We believe in building a family around the Bible, Scripture. And we believe in empowering you, every believer, the youngest to the eldest, empowering you, equipping you, helping you, praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit on you so that you could go out on your God-authored mission. So what I want to spend the remainder of our time together doing is simply answering these two questions together. And maybe you know the answers to these and maybe you don't. But I'm praying that by today, at least there will be a spark in you that says, I need to get to the bottom of this. The questions are these. What has God made you to be? Number one. Number two, what has God called you to do? What has God made you to be? And what has God called you to do? And when we can answer those two questions, we go out empowered on our God-authored mission. And that's how revival comes. I want to say something, though, if we could just stop for just a moment. Because there's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. And he's written a, a book called The Rise of Christianity. 
And in it, he writes about the phenomenal growth of the Christian movement. I just want you to listen to this as we consider our God-authored mission. He poses this question about how fast the church grew in the first 300 years. How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? To answer that question, he gives four distinct facts about the church during the first 300 years that he believes allowed the phenomenal growth of the church. And I just want to bring those before you before we move on, because these are things that we need in our DNA as well. These were the four earmarks of the rapid growth of the Christian movement. Number one, social networks. That is, men and women went and told their friends and family about Jesus. Their social networks. So this person receives Jesus, and then they go and tell the people that are around them. And that's the way the movement grew. It grew organically, not by marketing, but by people telling people about Jesus. Number two, the church was marked and grew because they were known for caring for the sick, widows, and orphans. Christians were those who were in society who was just known they care for the oppressed, they care for the hurting and the broken. They go to hurricane victims, they go to orphanages, they care for the homeless, they care for hurting teenagers, they care for broken people in society, they care for the poor. The church was marked by that. They tell their friends and neighbors, they help the sick, the widows, and the orphans. Number three, the church's stance against adultery, abortion, and infanticide. In the day in which the church was growing, during the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had a lot of misogynistic practices. There was a lot of men who were sexually, like, completely immoral, and they would have multiple partners and mistresses there in Rome. And the men were, were, were chauvinistic, and they would go out and, and have sex with whomever they wanted to, and they would impregnate a woman. And because they didn't want the responsibility of the baby, they would either have the woman get an abortion, or they would leave the baby out to die. They would go have sex irresponsibly and then say, hey, not my problem, you deal with it. So there was this oppression of women and children in the Roman Empire, and the church was the voice of reason to this nonsense in society. The church can't lose her voice in society. Wherever the society is sliding off the rails of God's intended way, the church has got to be the voice of reason and clarity. And they stood up against sexual immorality and abortion and infanticide. They stood up for the rights of women and children. And then fourth and finally, the church was known because of their theology of love. Jesus said, by this, all men will you, you know you that you're my disciples, that you love each other. This was, a, this was a, a people that taught that God loves us. Truly, God, he loves us. God is love. And then they taught we ought to love God. God first loved us. We love God and we love one another. So they went into the world with a message of love, the message of justice, helping the hurting. They were a people who told people about Jesus. That's the church, y'all. And we have a part to play in this really long, beautiful story. And we want to talk about what our place is. So if you would, to, to consider that, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And we'll finish here. Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, if you don't know this, there are a few key portions of Scripture that talk about what we call spiritual gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Corinthians 14. Um, Romans chapter 12, I believe, are the list of gifts, maybe not exhaustive, but they're categories in which I would say every single person here is gifted in one or more of these ways. And if you could read Romans chapter 12 and identify yourself here 
then I would say that's amazing because I believe each of you should be able to identify with one of these seven gifts. You have one of these. And I believe it's part of our job as a church community to make sure that you know and are walking in the mission that God has you based on the gifts that he's given you. So Romans chapter 12, are you there? And I believe it will also come up on the screen. Um, But we're going to look at verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouragement, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So seven gifts here listed. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, and leadership, and finally mercy. And we could talk a lot about what each of these are, but I just simply want to give you a very brief Simple definition, and if you go, man, you could have done that better, great. You do it yourself, figure out a better definition. But for sake of time, I'm just going to list these out, and I want you to consider as I read through this list of each of these seven gifts listed in Romans 12, which of those one or two or maybe three, maybe you got all seven, I don't know, but I'm going to suggest to you there's dominant in your life one or two of these. Prophecy, this gift is speaking forth the heart of God in a given situation. You tend to be that person who speaks God's heart to people. Serving, the skill and inclination towards the practical side of helping others. You see practical things, your eyes are fixed on it, you've got a gift of serving. You want to fix broken things, help people that need help, jump in and serve the body of Christ. Teaching, the knowledge, ability, it is a gift, and drive, there has to be some motivation to clarify truth. Knowledge, ability, and drive to clarify truth. Teaching, encouragement, the calling and skill to motivate people towards living the truth. Think of Nehemiah. 52 days, he built a wall around a city that had broken down walls. He had the gift of encouragement. The gift of giving, the heart, the means, and the insight for giving of yourself to meet the needs of others. We've got many people at Emmaus that have this gift of giving. The gift of leadership also has been translated administration or ruling. Some of you may have this gift, Amanda Hewitt. Um, The gift of organizing and calling people towards a clear and concentrated goal. And the gift of mercy. I think my wife is good here. And Ora Kinney, for sure. A heart that is sensitive and skilled in comforting, hurting, hurting people. Now, I believe that each of you have an inclination towards one or more of these. We should all... Seek to operate. It doesn't mean because I'm not gifted in mercy that I shouldn't be merciful. It doesn't mean that because I'm not a gifted teacher, I shouldn't teach. It doesn't mean that because I don't have the gift of giving, I don't have to be generous. But, But some of us are more inclined towards these and they tend to be our motivation for living in community. Now, let's talk a little bit on how you can identify these. How many of you feel like you're clear on what your spiritual gift is based on this list? 
Some of you are just scared to raise your hands. Um, gift of boldness there. Um, I encourage you to raise your hand. <laughs> um, if, you, if you feel like you're clear on what your spiritual gift is. Um, if not, um, I, I want to talk through a couple of ways that it may be helpful for you to figure out what your spiritual gifts are. The first thing I would ask you to ask yourself is, number one, what motivates you? So when you show up to your church community or in your neighborhood or at your job or in your community group as you're interacting with people, what is the thing that you frequently think we need to do more of? We need to, we need to pray for people more and speak uh, in the name of God over their lives. You probably have the gift of prophecy. Now, we need to help the single moms get their cars fixed and move when they're having trouble. We need to help serve the body. We need to help hurricane victims. You have the gift of serving. Well, man, I think we need to really work on raising money to make sure that the missionaries are funded, that church planting is happening, that justice work is the, in, in the world is happening, that the international justice mission is fully funded. Man, how can I leverage what I have to give away? You have the gift of giving. Or maybe you're thinking, it troubles me. I stay awake at night thinking about the hurting, the lost, and the lonely, how people don't have friends, how people are in hospitals, and, and people are just alone and isolated, and I want to get down in the dirt with the broken and the hurting. You have the gift of mercy. Or maybe you're someone who says, you know, when you come into an environment and you see that, that either they're, they're kind of stuck or very disorganized or not really seem like they're going anywhere, you see all this potential but no one to lead the charge or pave the way, you probably have the gift of leadership. Or, or when you see people who are just down and not living in accordance to what you believe God has for them, you, you want to come alongside them and say, come on, you got this. You know, you can do this. You, you, God has more for you than this. You have the gift of encouragement. So what is the thing that when, when you look at this community, you think, man, we need more of. And you may not say it exactly as I did, but I'm guessing if you were to, to fill out a survey, and I was just to say, Emmaus needs more of dot, 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 you fill in the blank, I'd be able to go, by, by your response, I'd be able to go, they're probably gift of serving. Oh, that's probably a gift of encouragement. That's gift of complaining. That's not a gift. That's carnal. Um, but so many of you have these gifts, and you don't even realize it, but I would say, what motivates you? What's the thing that really gets you energized? I would say that's probably an indication of a gift you have. The second question I would think you should ask about this, what is my spiritual gift, is where are you getting the most positive feedback from others? What are people saying to you? You know, when you taught that Bible study, it really helped me clarify the truth. Probably the gift of teaching. Or boy, I was super discouraged, and you came alongside of me, and I, I feel like I can keep going. Gift of encouragement. Boy, you were just there for me when things were really low. Like you were like one of the only people who came to me when I was really down, gift of mercy. But, but, but the question is, what are you hearing people say? What are people coming to you for? You know, there's some people, they run to Susan Pond because they're like, I think she has a gift of prophecy. And so um, I don't know what's going on in my life. I think I'm having spiritual warfare. I'm having these dreams and visions. I don't know how to interpret them. I just need someone to pray for me. I, I don't feel like I'm fully functioning in the spiritual gifts. Where's Susan Pond? Where, there she is right there. Okay, i got to make an appointment with Susan because I believe she has a gift of prophecy. I just, want her, I just want her to pray over me. I just want to hear what she has to say. God, what, what is God saying to me, Susan? Help me. Gift of prophecy. Some of you function that way. Some of you are just real sensitive to God and, and, and you see things and you see people and you're paying attention in ways that maybe others aren't. And then finally, I would say, what comes naturally to, to you? What do you just do naturally? Like, you know, 
a lot of people don't like to teach because public speaking terrifies them, then you're probably not called to teach. If you don't want to do it, you probably shouldn't do it. Reluctantly being drug up here and awkwardly standing before everybody, terrified and petrified, we don't want to do that to you and we don't want to do that to everybody else. But, but there are some things like you just naturally like to do. There's a lot of people that are very uncomfortable praying for others out loud, but not people with the gift of prophecy. They're like, man, I want to pray for people. I want to be on the prayer wall. I want to be on the prayer team. Where's your prayer team? How do I sign up for that? There's just things that you do, and when you do them, you feel energized. When you help somebody with a project, when you give somebody of yourself your time, talent, and treasure, and you're able to solve a problem, you have the gift of giving, and it's something you just do naturally, unthinkingly, and it gives you great joy and energy. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, I think it's very good for us to understand as we consider our spiritual gifts. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Did you just catch what Paul said? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but God is at work in you to will and to do after his good purpose. That is, God is working in you his purposes. He is giving you the desire to do the thing that he has made you to do. And this word, phrase, to do, to will and to do, is the Greek word energeo. Say it, energeo. Speak some Greek this morning. The word energeo comes we, it's from where we get our word energized. That is, you get energized when you do certain things because they're the thing that God has created you to do. Now, I like teaching the Bible. I get energized by teaching the Bible, studying, reading books, thinking, being around thinkers, listening to podcasts. That floats my boat. I spend my free time reading books and thinking about things and thinking how to be a better communicator. I don't know if it's working, but I'm trying. But I love it. I also love praying for people. I love talking to people about what's going on in their soul and praying over them. I, I, I'm a prophet teacher. I know that's my lane. That's the lane I run, and I, I don't have to think that. You ask someone to pray, I'll be the first one to put my hand. I'll pray for you. Come on. Does anyone want to teach a Bible study? Yeah, I do. Some of you guys will be like, no way. Get me out of that space. But then like Sean Larson, he sees this old broken down stand that I'm trying to teach off, and he's like, man, that thing needs to be fixed. He's probably thinking that right now. He's thinking, I just fixed that thing a few months ago and it got beat up again. What's Brian doing up there? And, you know, he's, he's planning on helping me out, gift of serving. It energizes him. There are things that just energize you. And I'm saying, stay in that lane. You don't try to be what you're not. Be who God has made you. Be free in that. And we want to be a community that affirms that in you. That says, hey, you know, if, if no one's told you this before, let me tell you. As I watch your life, this is what I see. And, and there are enough of you that I've been able to spend enough time around. I might be able to go around the room and point out a few of you and say, you know, I see this gift in you. I see you doing well in this. When you do this, I feel like people come alive. You really help folks when you do this, when you organize the meal train, or when you show up to the hospital and sit by the bedside, or when you go to Jen and Evan's house, or when you're around people when they're discouraged, man, you have a gift to cheerfully bring mercy. And, and there are so many of you that are so gifted. There's so much beautiful potential and gifting in this room. And so we believe that our purpose here is to be a community that fosters empowering you in the mission 
that God has for you. I want to read this from a missiologist, a guy named Ed Stetzer, um, who writes about the church. And, um, you know, one of the tragedies in any church is when um, you fill a church full of spectators, passive spectators, that come to watch the Sunday morning show. And they believe that their job is to simply empower the staff to do their job while they sit back and watch. Well, Ed Stetzer writes this, and I think it's important. He says, My fear is that we have created a class system in the body of Christ, comprised of the called and the not-so-much-called. Nothing could be further from the truth. The ministry assignment of the lay people is not to simply lay around and tell the called what they should be doing. Lay people are not customers of religious goods and services served by the storekeeper clergy. We are all called, although our current assignments may vary dramatically. Jesus said to an ordinary group of people, As a Father has sent me, I also send you. John 20, verse 21. These were not professionals, with the exception of professional fishermen and professional tax collector. And if we hope to engage and evangelize the world with the gospel, we cannot possibly rely on professionals to do it. Lay people often think that this means their job is to pay, pray, and get out of the way to make sure we are not communicating a low, lay, uh, irresponsible view of lay people, one thing is critical. We must create an atmosphere of expectation. In, al- in all our research on churches, people in transformational churches were taught that they were responsible for the ministry of the church. This was a recurring theme that they perceived, rightfully so, that they were the owners of the ministry. To do this, we must begin by declaring the two-class system of ministry is dead. We may, have, we may even have to kill it. A new level of ownership must be given to the people of God, and the people of God must embrace what they, were given, what they are given. God's desire is to have a church made up of everyday Christians living like missionaries. I couldn't say it better than that. When I read that, I'm like, that's my sermon. Dad, you stole my sermon. You stole the thoughts right out of my head. So that to say, as we wrap up for our three weeks of vision and values, authentic community is essential to Emmaus. We want to be in each other's lives, be connected with each other. We are about building family more than an organization, and we use the scriptures as the key true north to point us in the right direction. And we know that we are healthy and we have hit our aim when we are a church that empowers every believer and their God-authored mission. So until we've accomplished that, we've got work to do. So if in your community groups, there are times when you need to, to confront this in each other's lives, like what do you feel that God has called you to be, and then what has God called you to do? And if we can't answer that, then we must continue to pray and work with each other. Because the most excited group of people is the group of people that believe that they are part of transforming society, that they are a part of building God's church. You are not a spectator here. And if you're one of those people that likes to email the staff, and this isn't the church for you. We, 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 do, we do relationships. We ask you to take ownership. And, and if you're, we're, we're a young church, so if you're here for more than six months, like you're, you're a member. And so we expect you, what are you doing? Quit sitting on your butt and do something. Quit complaining. And, and, and find out what your God-authored mission is and let us empower you to do that. We want to encourage you to do that. But we're not about a bunch of people looking for who's supposed to do the work. It's just me and Jacob on staff and a couple, uh, Hannah and James, that are part-time. 
So, I mean, if it's to be, it's going to be on you, us a little bit, but mostly on you. And the more you take ownership of what God has called you to do, the more the church grows and thrives. It's people telling people about Jesus. It's people standing up for injustice in society. It's people being generous. It's people like you and me coming together and saying, it's us, it's we. It's not you pointing your finger at us or me and saying, oh, it's the pastor. It's not the pastor. It's us, the people. We do this together. We all have different gifts, but we're together to build the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, a group of people to do life with, a, a group of people to do kingdom work with. And, and God, I, I pray that we would have a feeling that we're building a team, that we're building a, a, a church of fully activated men and women who are clear on what they're supposed to be, what you've made them to be, and what they're supposed to do. And I pray for any who feel lost in their purpose and calling, who don't feel like they have the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe haven't experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit, maybe haven't had clarity on what they're called to be and do. Father, help us as a church to speak into each other's lives, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. God, use us to be the kind of church that launches people into a mission, that launches people into kingdom work. Because we know that your kingdom comes on the earth as it is in heaven when men and women have the kingdom come into their own hearts and lives. That they're so in love with Jesus and empowered by the Spirit and clear on their mission that they feel the power of God and the clarity of the Scriptures to go out and be agents of change in a world far from Jesus. So Father, I pray that we would all take ownership over the church that we would all take ownership over each other's lives, that we would all take ownership over the lostness of our community, that we would all do this together because there is more that we could do together than we could do alone or apart from one another. So Father, thank you for the Emmaus community. Thank you for the beauty of what we have seen here, body life and outreach that hasn't come from the top down. It's come as people have felt inspired and called to go and do good and to love. So Father, thank you that because of the love given to us by Jesus, that we can love one another, that we can love the world as we've been loved by you. So I pray for anybody here today who is unclear, who is not fully activated in their mission or maybe, God, they feel like they've been derailed from that mission. I pray today that restoration would happen, that prophecy would happen, that a return back to their original intent and purpose. Because none of us want to waste our life on earth. We want to see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So show us, God. Open our eyes and then help us to live the way you've called us to live.